Hello, everyone. It's me, your old ghoul friend, Michael Verratti. And we're here for a special episode of the Midnight Mass podcast. Now, you may be wondering, why am I introducing the show and not my trusty co-host? Well, it's because this episode is not only all about evil, it's really all about her. So without further ado, let me introduce the fabulous creator of Midnight Mass, cult leader, and drag superstar, Peaches Christ. Hi, Peaches. Hi. Oh, what a wonderful introduction. Thank you. You know, I so rarely get to do that for you. But really what we're doing this week is taking a beat. This is an out-of-sequence special episode celebrating an achievement of yours, as well as is your history that leads up to this moment. I'm, of course, talking about the release of All About Evil. After all this waiting, all this time, it's coming to Blu-ray, thanks to Severin. It's coming to Shudder. By the time this airs, we'll have hit the road to take it back to theaters. So we wanted to just pause and celebrate that. What's it feel like to really be back in the saddle with this movie after all this time? It honestly feels really great. I didn't see it for a while. It's not like I I watch it regularly or anything. And so the conversation about doing the quote unquote re-release actually started before the pandemic. Um, I was at Fantastic Fest and met Sam Zimmerman there, who's the head of Shudder. And so he said that he wanted it for Shudder. And that's really what got the ball rolling. And then David Gregory from Severin Films uh, reached out. Maybe that was after the pandemic started. And the idea was to do it actually in 2020, because that would have been the 10-year anniversary. But uh, I didn't want to do it when we couldn't have the live events, because that's what the movie's all about. So we were, were a little delayed. In true drag fashion, it's better late than never. You did say, kind of with air quotes, the re-release, because in a lot of ways, it's actually the release, because it was sort of limited release. As you know, we did a cross-country sort of road show where it was released through um, uh, landmark theaters, many of which we uh, did shows at, some, some of which we did not. And it was self-distributed by uh, the investors in my own company well, uh, via DVD. We did do a deal with NBC Universal. So it was on television for a few years on a TV channel called Chiller, which no longer exists. So yeah, it was out there. But then once it, because it didn't have a, a bigger distributor behind it, once those DVDs were sold out, once Chiller went away, boom, it was gone and you couldn't really get it. And I mean, occasionally I would be, get invited to do a screening, you know, here or there. Um, so it's not like it was, you know, lost. It just sure. it just wasn't available to the general public. Because of that, as you know, as a cult film fan, sometimes that inaccessibility for a bit leads to clamoring. I'm sure a lot of people were asking you how they could get their mitts on this film. And as you said, you're not watching it a lot. So let's just talk about, you know, every week when we talk to other people, I always ask about their relationships with these movies and how they change. But uh, what's it been like for you to rediscover your own film and to have this opportunity? It's been actually great because I've really enjoyed getting to experience it again. So I went to LA to do the Severn Films featurette documentary filming that they did. And that was lovely because 
you know, I was reunited with a lot of the cast. We've stayed friends. So it's not like we haven't, you know, we've done a lot together over the years and we've continued to collaborate and uh, continue to stay close to each other. So I don't want to give the impression that we hadn't seen each other, but it was neat to get together because of All About Evil and actually sit and watch the movie with them while we were being, you know, recorded for the commentary and all of that. And, um, oh, it was just really fun and really sweet. And I think all of us have really fond memories personally from that time of our life. And you mentioned this new feature that is part of the Severin release. This Blu-ray is tricked out. I mean, yeah. most movies could only aspire to get this level of drag, let's be honest, because the movie is not only restored on Blu-ray, but you get a new featurette, all the special features that were on the original DVD, a CD soundtrack, and a booklet. This is yeah. like the bells and whistles. A booklet by you. <laughs> it's true. Um, and I actually wasn't setting myself up to bring up the booklet in that way. But no, you, you mentioned the road show. And in 2010, I got to go on the road with Peaches and I kept a journal of all of our various misadventures across the country in different cities. And uh, you graciously, when the Blu-ray uh, was being put together, asked, do you still have that stuff? And I did. And I went back through, I updated some things. I wrote a new introduction and that's all included in a 35 page booklet that comes with the Blu-ray. And it was really great to revisit the memories of that trip because I think when we were there, we knew it was special, but there's also that thing when you're in the moment, you don't quite take into account what you're doing is not usual, you know? It was so unusual to everyone else, but me. Right. <laughs> because it was such an extension of what I was already doing. So all I was saying is, hey, I made a movie and I do this other thing called Midnight Mass in San Francisco. Well, why don't we take the movie out on the road and we'll do a version of Midnight Mass, you know, with the movie. And so that's essentially what we did. Um, but but you know, years later, I realized, oh my God, one, that was so fucking hard. Two, it was hard to obviously make any money. And three, it was unsustainable as far as, you know, you, there's only, I mean, we, we still went to, I don't know, like, I think I did it in like 18 cities or something. What listeners need to understand is that it was a malleable living show. And by yes. that, we mean it was not the same in every city. Sometimes we would have members of the cast of All About Evil with us, whether it be Natasha Leone, Cassandra Peterson, Mink Stoll, Thomas Decker, whoever. And sometimes we would utilize the local Rocky Horror cast or local drag performers or local cult personalities. And so every time we hit a new city, you had to kind of sit there and figure out who do we have, what can we do, what's the venue, and what can we pull off every week essentially for the whole summer. And sometimes, like in the case when we went to Milwaukee and Chicago, which were two back-to-back nights, we had to figure out two shows with two different groups of people in two different venues Yeah, within 48 hours. It was wild. And yet it was so just the time of our punk rock little lives that you're right, until later, you kind of like step back and think, how did that even happen? How did that work? Yeah. We're celebrating the release of All About Evil on Blu-ray in this journey. And we look at something like the roadshow and that organic nature of building a chosen family that you use to take on the road to celebrate the movie. But it goes all the way back before that. 
to Midnight Mass when Midnight Mass was a stage show, when you created a short film called Grindhouse, mm-hmm. not to be confused with the Robert Rodriguez, Quentin Tarantino film. And in fact, you had the title first, correct? I did, yes. My little short film came out in 2003. Yeah, you have a long history of having titles before other people. And that's why the title uh, for All About Evil wasn't actually Grindhouse. We discussed that in one of the upcoming interviews. In celebration of this long journey that Peaches has been on, are joined by three guests who are quite special because they were there at the beginning. They all were in the original short film Grindhouse and did subsequently appear in All About Evil. But this is the genesis. This is the seed from which All About Evil grows. And so that, I feel, is the best way for us to celebrate this release and this journey because you've been on this road for almost... (laughs) 20 years. Don't say it. Don't say it, you bitch. Uh, yes. Well, I, I didn't do the math right because it's technically it's, uh, it's actually 19. over. It's actually over 20 years. Well, I, I'm thinking about like one of these people um, we're going to bring on actually last has known me since I was a teenager. We met right. when we were 15 years old. So yes, yes, we're talking many, many, many years worth of friendship. And then the other two, you know, I met in the mid 90s, you know, in San Francisco. So these people that we're about to bring on when we talked about Michael and I talked about doing a special episode for Midnight Mass. Um, we came up with this idea because the reality of it is it's not hard to listen to or find interviews with people that um, are the, the bigger stars in All About Evil. You can see the featurette. Severin did a brilliant job. You know, right. many of them are going to be on stage with us for the upcoming screenings. But these three people, they are truly both behind the scenes, chosen family who've known me for decades and were literally the people that were part of the little short film. And then they got to be part of the feature. So I do think this is a really special episode and it's really a thrill. And the other thing that makes it special is Michael being the interviewer and me, you know, being on the other side of things. And Michael in this show is really the only host and I'm joining my friends and we're answering his questions. So we should get on with it. We should. And I will say it was a real delight to kind of take the reins, but I will also admit that it was like herding cats a little bit because you (laughs) are, are so entrenched with all of these folks. And I, I know, I know uh, most of them as well throughout the years, but it's that thing when you gather people who've known each other for a long time, the conversation is freewheeling and long reaching. And in a way, because this is a special episode celebrating that trajectory, I wouldn't have it any other way. It's as you said, we can look at the structured interviews about the history of All About Evil across many platforms, but this is true oral history. I mean that without the drag joke that Peaches is about to follow us with. I really, I really don't want to introduce this next guest now because I have no oral history with this person, but I'll do it anyway. <laughs> and just know, listeners, there's been no Kai Kai uh, on my part. Um, Vincentos and Pippi love stalking on the other. Anyway, uh, I digress. Uh, uh, Vincentos is a dear, dear friend who also happened to be the original Mr. Twigs and Grindhouse and scored the movie All About Evil. Without further ado, it's the fantastic macabre snob themselves, Vincentos. <laughs> No, 
this is a very personal, deeply personal episode of the Midnight Mass podcast. And we're interviewing uh, near and dear close personal friends of mine who have been um, a part of All About Evil since the very beginning. And this next guest, she and I met way back in the day at the Tea Shack uh, over at the Stud Club in San Francisco. And we became sister witches pretty much from the very start we bonded uh i nicknamed her the macabre snob uh and i do take full credit for that and we collaborated for years and years and years and to this day we still collaborate on projects and things when we can she is an accomplished musician and an award-winning drag performer a filmmaker an event producer the creator of the new orleans drag workshop which she ran many many cycles of uh she is a renaissance queen if you will, um, who's done it all, truly. Uh, Most recently, I had the absolute pleasure and joy of seeing this person open for Bauhaus. So I'm living a dream come true, vicariously through my friend who is opening and on tour with fucking Bauhaus. I adore her. She did the music for All About Evil. So the entire score also pops up in the movie here and there, you know, if you if you know what, what, what to look for. Um, but played Mr. Twiggs in the original version of the film Grindhouse. And I just love her to death. It's been Santos. Oh my gosh. I am just so thrilled to be here. <laughs> I didn't even say that we, you and I created the San Francisco Underground Short Film Festival. And we recreated the Russian River Massacre. And we did that yes, together. Did. With that and we cow. upset tons of people doing it. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> We've been upsetting people together for over 20 years now. That's true. Lots of refunds. Peaches just gave this very uh, wonderful history. Uh, a rose Very generous. Very generous, very rose-tinted. So I want to ask you, Vincentos, is your recollection of your beginnings with Peaches as kind? I have very little recollections of our beginnings because (laughs) I, at the time that we met, was a very severe alcoholic and was typically in a blackout um, by the time the sun went down. And so from what I remember, it was loads of fun. Um, But there was that instant bond, that instant connection, that instant like, hey, girl, hey. Uh, there wasn't really like a uh, any hurdles in like a getting to know you like way. It was just one of those just like add alcohol and magical best friends from the beginning because we all we like the spooky stuff. We like the same bands. We like the same music. We our drag was similar. Hers was like a kind of more booger version of what I was doing. Um, <laughs> but but yeah, I mean, it was just like an instant kinship, a kismet. It, it it is true. I'll, I'll jump in and say that at that time you had um, the umbrella of uh, T Shack, where we all really got along. What is T Shack? It's Tranny Shack, but I'm being respectful. Oh, okay. yeah. But yes, the okay. the club at the time was called Tranny Shack. And uh, the caveat here for all you listeners who um, might feel triggered by that is that at the time that word was not a pejorative to any of us, including our trans friends who were very much a part of the club that we were all a part of. Uh, and it was an umbrella term. And the club itself was an umbrella experience where everyone who was different or freakish 
or punk, you know, hung out. And not just those old school queens hung out there, you know, transvestites hung out there with their wives, you know, um, cool punk kids who just wanted to be, you know, uh, around drag performers. Um, it old, was old parents. It really was everybody. There was no demographic that wasn't involved. And I've never been involved in a scene like that since. And I've just found that things over the years have just become even more, more categorized and more yes. clicked and, and separated. And people are afraid to mingle in those ways that we used to. Um, and I think they're always afraid of offending everybody as well or being in the wrong space or taking up someone else's space. And so I miss what is, you know, as cheesy as it sounds, what was a really an iconic melting pot experience. When you both facetiously and not facetiously referred to alcohol as being the the instant friend juice, as it were. Sure. Of course, there's more there. You said that you bonded over the spookiness. And I, I know yeah. now we have a world of horror drag that's more prevalent because we've got TV shows about it, et cetera. But at the time, that still was very not what people thought of when they thought of drag performers. And so it was part of, of the um, allure of both T-Shack, but also your, your growing relationship with Peaches is that you both leaned into the horror of it all. And I think that was a big part of me even stepping into the world of drag uh, before going to T-Shack. Um, I, the world of drag to me was just men in wigs lip syncing to Dolly Parton. And it wasn't until the first time that a friend literally dragged me to the club, convincing me that there would be cute guys there for me to hit on. I had no interest in drag. And so when I was encountering people like Peaches Christ or Squeaky Blonde and seeing like there was other goth spooky queens, it just kind of clicked with me like, oh, wait, I can take what I already love and infuse it with this new art form. And also infuse that with music, which was another thing that it was really ingrained in me, and mesh it all together and create a, a whole brand new character and a whole brand new life and a, a new family and a new lifestyle out of it. So I never would have seen it coming. If you would have asked me the night before I went to the shack, I would have said drag is fucking stupid. And I honestly still think it is, but it gave me a lot of great years of a lot of great fun. You did say that. So I wasn't so drunk that I don't remember. The first time I met Vince Santos, he, who goes by but both um, in, in, in his male form or female form or anything in between, always goes by the name Vince Santos. So you'll notice that at least I, with a lot of my friends, um, use pronouns interchangeably, which has always been fine in our world. Um, yes, and I like to say that I've been gender careless since 1978. <laughs> so. Yeah, we, we, so uh, another thing to sort of warn young listeners about we older queers often refer to each other as he she they that whatever i thought you were kind of like aloof about drag you came to the bridge for some reason i think at the time correct me if i'm wrong but you and squeaky dated for like a hot minute and i met we you did. yes ah! and i met you then and i remember being like what a bitch thinks he's too good for drag and then you know <laughs> It was like it was like a month later and she's like on stage, you know, at the stud. Sure, sure. And and even more strange is like, you know, Squeaky is such a beautiful, beautiful creature. Yeah. Um, both in and out of drag. And and for me to to date a drag queen was like so outside of my comfort zone. Cause you know, I really identified with like daddies and and leather guys and and quote unquote butch queens is what I thought I was into. 
And then I met this beautiful creature, Squeaky, that was beautiful in and out of drag. And I was just mesmerized. And, and it really kind of broke down my, my conceptions that I had built up for myself as a young man of thinking that I needed to be with another man's man. Yeah. You know, and then that was all bullshit. Well, and I love what you say about you just kind of need to meet that person who breaks down the perception, who breaks down the barrier. Because I think that when you come from places that are not bigger cities, your idea of drag is, as you said, very myopic. You know, it was the same when mm -hmm. I grew up in the Midwest. It's like, oh, it's it's just a man in a dress and a wig. And it had this sort of pageantry idea. But when you exist in the world of punks and goths and horror, and then you see that there's there's a very thin line because what are they both but art forms of heightened reality? You use heightened reality sure. to address something, to expose something, to critique something. And then there's sort of that symbiosis. And then everything is open and everything's possible. From the time I was about 14, almost 15, I was in high drag every day as a death rocker going to high school. And I mean, full face makeup. And my hair was bigger than anyone's wig out there and I was wearing women's clothing and cross-dressing and and to me it didn't register as drag it, it registered as punk but when I look back on it now I'm like oh girl you've been doing drag you know practically your whole life <laughs> and there's really not much difference between the look I was doing when I was 15 to the look that I'm doing now well, from uh, the revelation of horror drag to horror on stage uh, in San Francisco to putting it on film, let's talk a little bit about Grindhouse. When Peaches mm. brought you the idea of playing Mr. Twigs in this short, do you remember sort of what was going on and your reaction to being asked to do this? Yeah, I was horrified. Uh, I had been making my own films, usually a silent film with a narrative. Um, so I wasn't really ever comfortable with the idea of acting and I still am not to this day. And I am currently in the process of presenting my first solo piece of theater where I play another character, um, and have done a few little acting gigs since then. But when she said, like, I want you to play this character in my movie, of course, I'm going to say yes. Like, how could you not? And of course, when you read who the character is, it's like, well, how could I not play Mr. Twigs? I mean, he is everything that I am, but but older. So uh, I just kind of took a leap of faith. And at the time, we were kind of up for whatever. You know, I I had no perception of, of what people thought of me. Social media wasn't even really a thing. Like, nobody was going to, like, watch this movie and cotton and take Mr. Twigs to task and try and cancel him, you know? So I just like, just kind of just jumped in with both feet and said, fuck it. And, but I remember when the cameras started rolling, I felt like I was completely a deer in the headlights and very much out of place. And I think it really shows in the performance. I don't think so. I, I, I remember, you know, one thing, Michael, that I don't think I've even talked about and it doesn't get brought up very often as far as the origin of, of, um, my short films is that they really did um, start because Vincentos, myself, and, and another sister witch, Putanesca, created an event up in Guerneville, which is this gay little resort town outside of San Francisco. It, it's it's like Fire Island um, or Provincetown, if it were for, you know, like 
tweak meth heads yeah (laughs) but no now it's not it has it has kind of become bougie since then but at the time it was this really actually fabulous down-to-earth gay town on the river and and october was not what they considered seasonal so these young drag performers wanting to go up there and take over the town and bring a ton of people from the city up to um, Guerneville for the weekend to, to have a weekend of horror with parties and, and shows and things, movie screenings. We did a midnight mass in the woods and, you know, it was fabulous. We, we made our own original film for that event. That's really where you and I really, Vincentos pushed Puta as well. The three of us together pushed each other to make these movies and helped yeah. each other. I remember that my film was really good. I don't remember a thing about your two movies <laughs> that you made. <laughs> I honestly don't even know the titles. Your film was really good. It was called 33. And um, it was about Vincentos turning 33. I was still drinking. I was in my later 20s. It was the year 2001. It was a month after September 11th, you know, and mm-hmm. my my film was the season of the troll film, which we talked with our other guest, Jennifer, about because Jennifer, who plays Deborah in Grindhouse, was yeah. troll girl. And so all of these worlds, all of these conversations, all of these people, we were all totally involved in each other's shit, you know? Right. Yeah. Um, and it was, a, it was a really fabulous community. We had the Russian River Massacre where we made these movies. And what Vincentos and I realized was, okay, the Russian River Massacre is not really making us any money. We don't want to keep doing this anymore. It's a lot of work for very little payoff, but we still want to make these fucking movies. And yeah. so Grindhouse was made for the first ever San Francisco Underground Short Film Festival. So that's the other thing about this that I had actually forgotten. I made Grindhouse to premiere at Vincentos and I's own film festival. And I took the easy way out and just re-premiered 33. (laughs) Yes, exactly. (laughs) I made a new film. And acted in the new movie, though. So I was was double-donging it. Yeah, Um, that's funny. What's funny is you brought up that... uh, Russian River Massacre happened just a month after 9-11. Mm-hmm. And to me, that was the very first experience of getting anything remotely like canceled before because yeah. people saw the word massacre in the name yeah. and somehow related it to the horror of 9-11 that was a month previous. And a lot of people kind of, well, when I say a lot of people, I mean like two lesbians somehow like found us on whatever MySpace we were using back then and really came for us and told us like, how dare you? Like this time is just awful. And I'm like, "Um, bitch, it's drag, it's horror, it's Halloween, it's in the woods. It's a massacre. You're a racist for even assuming that it has anything to do with 9-11. So I canceled (laughs) her back. Good, because the other thing about it is we had planned the title in the event before the, you know, 9-11 ever happened. So right before 9-11 happened, we were in New York together for Wigstock. And so there's actually photos of me and Monsanto's Heclina at the piers in New York where you can see the Twin Towers, you know, in the background. And it was like, I think it was like a week later, you know, they were gone, Mm -hmm. um, which is so surreal. Thanks, Lady Bunny. Do you remember you and I were like sleeping on the floor of someone's apartment? I have blocked that from my memory. And it's so funny to me because I travel a lot these days and whenever... 
whenever I'm in it going to a major city, I get a message from my friend like, oh my gosh, you should come stay with me. And my answer is always like, bitch, I stay in hotels. <laughs> and I don't even share a room. I, I need yeah. one king bed just for me. So, <laughs> Smart. so we've come a long way. Yes, we have. <laughs> well, to, to bring us back on track, you had made Grindhouse for the short film festival. And one, one question that I wanted to return to before we got into All About Evil proper, you said, Vincentos, that Mr. Twiggs was everything that you were except in age. What did you mean by that? Well, he's like, uh, he's a little bit creepy. He's a little bit pervy. He's definitely stylish um, and has, you know, delusions of grandeur of who he actually is. You know, he walks through life as a character. And I often have to catch myself from doing that same thing um, when I'm out in public. And I think that's really just. Uh, kind of an insecurity mechanism that that just kind of switches on when I'm, you know, in a big group of people. I, I because I don't like to be in big, big groups of people, I kind of turn on the the, the Vincentos mode and become what I think maybe is extra charming or extra outgoing or extra funny. Um, and thank God I don't drink anymore because I used to think I was extra charming and extra funny and extra outgoing, but I was just straight up fucking annoying. It's true. <laughs> so Grindhouse evolves into the feature film All About Evil and your duties, mm -hmm. as it were, uh, change. Uh, you go from in front of the camera to behind the camera as, as the composer. And you are a very accomplished musical artist. But scoring a movie is a whole adventure. Mm. So could you just tell us about taking that on? It was very much a kind of comedy of errors. When I was first approached to do the score, it wasn't even presented as a score. It was just like, hey, Vincento, so I got my movie greenlit. I'd really love it if you do some music for it, which I took as like, I've got years of music from several bands that I've been in and several friends' bands and all this stuff that wouldn't even have to be licensed and it's spooky and cool. And I would just take that and drop it in over different scenes and we'd be good to go and I'd get my fucking credit. Um, and hopefully a check. And <laughs> and so honestly, when she sent me the first couple very short clips, I would do just that. And I remember in particular uh, when Deborah is stabbing her mother on the floor with the pen, I dropped over like a grindcore band that was a track made by a friend of mine. And to me, it was just like the fiercest fucking thing. Like this, like, just like kind of rah, 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 and like the blood flying <laughs> everywhere. And I sent it to her and she's like, Okay, let me clarify what we want here is um, what we're really looking for more is like an original score. And I said, oh, well, of course. I mean, I could definitely do that. But in the back of my head, I was thinking like, I'm in way over my head. I had laid music over my own like experimental films, but um, taking on a score was something I'd never even considered or researched or anything. But I figured like, this is really her first movie. Why can't it be my first score? And we can all learn together. Um, but it was a very, very bumpy, bumpy start. There was a point you looked over at me, Vincentos, and and this is like as the movie's like, oh, we're really doing this. Like, they're, they're, you know, producers are on board, and you know, their shit is happening. And Vincentos looked over at me, and he goes, "What makes you think you can do this?" <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we were, we were literally like trying to make these 15 minute films over yes. a very stressful weekend to like, yes. you know, having a fucking casting call and producers and executives and rehearsals. And it all seems so 
professional just overnight. And I was just kind of floored by the fact that, that she made it happen. But you and I were the only two in that boat. And that's a really special thing because if you look at everyone else in this film, the, the, lead, the leads are all played by seasoned vets. The yeah. editor, the DP, Tom Richmond, a seasoned veteran, Chris Boxell, the art director, like just made it that much more horrifying. I actually think it was nice because Vince and I had each other. So he True. was doing something new, you know, for the first time. And I was doing something new for the first time. And so we did have to kind of be patient with each other. And there were periods of frustration where I knew he was really frustrated because I didn't have. I didn't have the words. The musical language. I didn't have the musical language. And I didn't have the film language. And so we, we struggled. Were, we did we, struggle. It was like Helen Keller talking to Helen Keller. You know what's interesting, though, is I feel like of all the questions you could have asked, to an outsider, yeah, it might have seemed ab abrupt or abrasive. But I think if you're an artist, it's the most true question, right? Because I think that especially when you don't come from a corporate side of the industry and you have to pull you, yourself up by your bootstraps and make something out of literally nothing. It does seem insane. How do we do this? I don't think honestly that it was coming as a read. It was kind no. of just coming out of a, out of a place of awe. Like, do you really think you can do this? You know, can't, can we do this? They were articulating my thoughts in a way that was a relief. Like, it was kind of like there was this elephant in the room. And I think because Vince Santos and I had a very similar kind of ambition, creativity, we were interested in the same stuff. I mean, fuck, we, we started an underground film festival together. We made silly little short films together. He was Mr. Twiggs. I totally, totally got where he was coming from. And then the reverse side of it was me turning around and going like, oh, and by the way, will you score the whole movie and do this thing yes. that you've, you've never done before? And also score it with almost no money, no orchestra, no studio, <laughs> That's no right. yeah. really anything, just whatever you have at home. Do your best. <laughs> Good luck. We should say, to be fair, we did have an incredible music supervisor who was yes. do, doing the movie for well below his rate. You know, a lot incredibly of the incredibly hot too, very sexy Steve Gazicki, who's gone on to win literally Oscars. He's he was the music supervisor for fucking La La Land. Why well, he doesn't call anymore? Oh, he's going to be at the LA screening. He's very excited. He's he's lovely, and he loved Ben Santos. He respected Ben Santos. So the nice thing was, we did have a really great professional kind of holding our hand. Yeah, we had somebody to lean on for yes, sure. Yeah. This is a unique and special episode of Midnight Mass as it stands, but I also think in the trajectory of all the episodes we've done, Peaches, we so rarely get to talk to a composer. And as you it's know, true. films can live and die by the music. Oh, that's what I learned. I mean, I didn't understand how important, how influential music was to the process of film itself until I was put in that position. And now every film that I watch, I'm watching it through a completely different lens. And it literally can make or break a movie. Well, looking back at it as your first score, I mean, of course, anytime we, we do something for the first time and it's trial by fire, I'm sure there are many things that you think, oh, if I could do that again, or I would do differently. Sure, sure. In sort of a variation of a question I ask a lot of guests, with relationship to this score, how has your relationship with the music that you made for this movie changed over the years, if at all? I think I've definitely given myself a lot more room to be experimental. But at the same time, having accomplished this particular project 
at the same time I was creating my solo career as a musician, it kind of just gave me that confidence to really go out on my own as opposed to the way I grew up was always being in different bands and different collaborative projects, um, which I still do here and there, but it really kind of gave me that power to like, you are a one woman show and you can do anything. Um, and I would love to share just like, I just like one little story about our first pass. Um, if I have time and that yeah. was once we decided there was going to be a full score, Peaches sent me the scene where Veronica had been drugged and she wakes up in the theater and she's locked inside. And it's a long scene, um, one of the longer scenes and one of the longer compositions I had to do. Well, the final result was is this is kind of like very eerie, dissonant, beautifully layered composition of organs and backwards harpsichords and and bowed instruments and percussion and 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 I thought like wow as I was creating I'm like I am really feeling this and so I mix it down and I email it over to the to the team and I think it was Peaches and and the editor and maybe a couple other people sitting in a room like kind of anticipating this first draft from me and 20 minutes later I get a call from Peaches and she says what is this like we don't understand this at all and I thought well you all are fucking crazy and you can go fuck yourselves I didn't say that <laughs> but I you know I said well what can you be more descriptive and she's like well I mean there's just like almost nothing there and I'm like that's not possible it's so rich and layered and so I hung up angry. I went over to my computer. I sat down. I looked at the files and I had realized that I had muted every single track except for one symbol. And so what they got was like about 10 minutes of silence and maybe every 30 seconds to two minutes, you'd get a little. <laughs> and that was it <laughs> for the entire for the entire scene. And And I instantly remixed it and sent it out to them. They got it. 20 minutes later, she calls me back and basically says, you're hired. You know, it was a huge snafu. I, I, I was constantly in fear of getting fired on this project on the daily just because of the nature of the business and watching right. other people getting replaced and people are completely disposable. I'm sure she's never told me this in person or in real life, but I'm sure that they had a backup plan in case I couldn't come through. You know, we did not, but I was pushed to have sure. one, if, if that makes any sense. You would have been wise to have one. And I never did. So whether or not the producers had one, I really yeah. don't know. Because when you make a movie, even though I'm credited as a producer, because I'm also the writer and director and I'm in the movie as Peaches, one of the jobs of the producers is to actually do a bunch of shit that I don't know about, sure, if, if sure. that makes sense. They're basically creating fail safes, you know, that that they they don't bother me with because the idea is to keep me as stress-free as possible, which is right. not possible. Yeah. But I was so determined to make it work with Vincentos that actually what you hear in the movie, that music that um, he's talking about, which I absolutely still to this day love, that that is some of my favorite music, is, is it's the scene where uh, Kat Turner, Veronica, wakes up in the movie theater and she is locked inside. And that whole sequence of her making her way up onto the stage and going downstairs into the basement and leading into her big scream queen moment before 
the gu- <laughs> yeah before the guillotine i'd forgotten that story vincentos total but as you were describing it i was like oh i remember there was no music. And i remember my heart <laughs> sinking i remember my heart sinking because i thought she i thought vincentos had lost her fucking mind <laughs> and i was sitting i was sitting in that room and i'm like that can't be yeah. it that can't be right and and they're like nope this is what he sent mm-hmm. us this is what he sent us and i'm like there's no way she would think this is okay <laughs> You know, from there, from there, we spent months creating, I think, what was actually a really good working relationship. I got over having the hurt feelings and literally I would send you a piece and you would say, great. Or you would say, it's not working. Go back and redo it. And of course, I I would be disappointed every time I would get denied, but then I would create something even better and then come back more proud. And uh, honestly, uh, every day I said I was in fear of getting fired and not really because like I didn't want to let my friend down or wanted to fail, you know, a a huge life accomplishment. It's really, I wanted my fucking name in that opening sequence, that title sequence, because I had seen the graphics already. And I'm like, if my name is not featured in big letters on the big (laughs) screen, they can all fuck off and die. Um, (laughs) But when I did get the final call from Peaches and the final sign off, I was at the Russian river at this trashy uh, resort called the Triple R. And I stepped away from the crowd. There was like a pool party going on. And I found a corner and she told me like, okay, you know, this, I'm just giving you like the final word. We are done. You're good to go. And I said, okay, cool. Thanks. And I went and found a little corner and I sat on a little bench and I literally just like started bawling real tears for a few minutes. And it was just like this incredible weight being lifted off of me also mixed with this like incredible sense of accomplishment pride and that I had done my friend right. And that I did something that I didn't think I could actually do, you know? And not only did you do me right, you did everyone right. Because I do feel like this movie, as you know, it's all of our movie. And I can't give um, enough credit to Severin for the way that they're handling this re-release. Like, a lot of people, I think, think that I have more to do with it than I do. I don't. When you're the filmmaker and someone's interested in putting out your movie again, you're at their mercy. I didn't have any say in whether or not they put out a big fancy Blu-ray or it would have a slip cover or not. That's all up to them. It was them. It was Severin who came to me and said, what about Ben Santos's score? We want to put it out on a CD. So blown away. How cool is that? Yeah. To be honest, when you approached me about composing all the files and and going back, I got with my sound engineer and the person that engineered the actual mixed out of the film. And we all three just thought like, do we even have this shit? It is on some busted, dusty hard drive in a drawer on a computer that doesn't even exist anymore. Thank you to Donnie Newenhouse for finding those files at the, at the ninth hour and sending them to me. And it was really just a file of the entire movie. So I had to go through and select each piece and edit it down and then name it and submit something that was, you know, legible, you know, for a producer to create a CD out of. And I'm so thankful that it happened because I don't know if that material would have survived outside of just being layered over the film. And so it's like, I got to relive it and revisit it and feel that sense of joy and pride all over again. And now fans can discover it anew. I mean, and when you think of this trajectory, the trial by fire score, that you weren't even sure about taking the job. And now it's coming out as a soundtrack on its own disc as part of the Blu-ray prestige release of this movie. 
that's got to be, you know, the greatest icing on the cake. The best part about it is like nobody has the equipment to watch this or listen to any of this stuff that's being released. <laughs> <laughs> but it's going to look great in the shadow box in my living room. I have been blown away by the number of collectors. And I think it's unique to horror. I know, it is. I know. People still have their VHS tapes and their compact discs and their towers and their book bookshelves full of stuff. And I admire them for it. Vince Santos, we want to continue talking to you. So what we're proposing is that some of the more scandalous um, of our of our friendship, mm. some of the more juicy details, some of the more outrageous things, would you mind sticking around and us recording a video that we can put on our Patreon? Not at all. I look so fucking cute right now. It's like gothic horror back there. Like For the listeners, I'm sitting in my music parlor in my home in Southern Mississippi. And so I've decked it out with all of the things that I love the most, all my favorite artists, my beautiful 1936 grand piano in the background my old friend chandelier i mean it just looks like a scene from its own movie yes coming soon to a theater never near you <laughs> if you want to see what michael and i are seeing subscribe to the patreon jump over there we're going to talk to vince santos a little bit more um and so you can you can check that out but vince we we hope that this is one of many visits to the midnight mass podcast i'm truly make. honored i have so many good ideas for your little show <laughs> <laughs> I bet you do. <laughs> that was our interview with the sensational macabre. Marvelous, Vince Santos. I have to tell you, Peaches, I love Vince Santos. I love everything that Vince Santos had to say. I love the bickering that you two do as gothy sisters. We have so many stories, and she and I have done so much together. And I think we would be remiss, because we actually did not talk about this with Vince Santos in the interview, but Vince Santos's history is rich and, and very full of many, many tales to tell. And um, this would be a good time to mention that Vince Santos has a documentary coming out. Yes. Yes, that's right. So Last Dance is a new documentary film that's having its world premiere at the Frameline Film Festival. Um, I apparently was left on the cutting room floor. <laughs> when you're making a documentary film, you want to craft a story. And this yeah. story, uh, because I did get to see the movie and it is beautiful. It is gorgeous. But this story, um, while it's about Ben Santos, it's specifically about uh, his journey to New Orleans and creating something called the New Orleans Drag Workshop and really being a mentor and a teacher for these students. And it leads to them being able to take a show to Paris. And Ben Santos is kind of basically deciding in the in the course of the doc documentary that that's going to be their last drag show. It's a really beautiful, touching movie. Last Dance, check it out. The idea of coming to a city and finding sort of a drag matriarch, somebody yeah. who has created a scene and been part of a scene that fostered a whole new generation of artists. 
Our next guest is someone you and I both truly love and has a long history in cult film because, you know, we began our podcast with discussion of a movie that he was in, Vegas in Space. And we know from the history of Vegas in Space that the drag scene in San Francisco was this punk, audacious, glamour-filled explosion. And he was there at the center of it doing this whole thing that is unique to him. You arrive in San Francisco, get to meet him. And next thing you know, there's a whole new chapter of wild, weird, and crazy in the best possible way. And yeah. I'm going to let you introduce him, but I, I could not adore this person more. I love that we got to talk to him about this and that he went from Vegas in space to Grindhouse to All About Evil and <laughs> continues to be part of this, you know, drag cinema trajectory. Yes. And also was a was a, a successful musician and pop singer and the assistant to Stella Adler. I don't even know if you knew that, but like I, I don't think I did. This person has lived an extraordinary life. And as much as we read each other and tease each other, I honestly, you're right, as far as the matriarch goes, and someone I really looked up to. And one of the reasons. I continue to look up to them. And we touch on this a little bit is because this person has through thick and thin always kept a sense of humor. And through some dark, dark days, the wickedness, the sense of humor that this person's enjoyed life with truly grabs life and lives in the moment, you know, really grabs it in the moment. He's just as, you know, a phenomenally inspiring person. And so without further ado, the original stepmother and <laughs> evil, wicked stepmother and Grindhouse uh, to playing the principal, Principal Hunter in All About Evil. It's the wonderful, the legendary Timmy Spence. I used to shop at Neiman Marcus and some other fine stores, but I don't do my shopping in them places no more. They're just a bunch of two-faced bitches who went from rags to riches and I won't buy high-priced stitches from the $10 whore. I'm talking Walmart, honey. I spend my days and nights and I don't give two fucks about human rights. It is my extreme pleasure to introduce our next guest, a dear old friend of mine from way back in the 90s. That's right, we met in the mid-90s at the Stud Bar for a little club back in the day that we now call T-Shack. She always impressed me with her wild and outrageous performances. Her shock value knew no bounds. This queen was perhaps one of the most shocking queens I've ever seen on stage, and not for anything other than the shit she would say. Uh, she has become a legend of film and song, one of the stars of Vegas in Space, the first ever cult movie we talked about on this very podcast. She's also the pop singer known for her brand new dance single. I encourage you all to look it up on YouTube. And the list goes on and on and on. I could talk about her for days. Uh, but as far as I'm concerned she is the original wicked stepmother in the original All About Evil Grindhouse. She also came in and played the high school principal in the movie All About Evil. Some people have known her as Lois Turd, but I know him best as my dear, dear friend, a, a living legend. It's the wonderful Timmy Spence. Thank you, Peaches. You're welcome, <laughs> Timmy. Thanks for coming on the show. So, Timmy, when Peaches uh, shares her recollection of, of first meeting you in the mid-90s, she, she had a lot of flowery language there, but 
I'm curious from your side, what what was your first impression of meeting Ms. Christ? I can't remember the very first time we met. I remember meeting her and Martini uh, at the club, I guess, once. But, you know, I used to never pay attention to anybody but myself. You know, <laughs> I mean, that was true. It's true. I don't know. She might have a better recollection than me. And it makes sense that Timmy wouldn't remember us as well because we were going to the club and Timmy was an established San Francisco icon, truly. So by the time Timmy met me, I was 22 or 23. And, um, you know, this club had just started and Timmy was like performing there weekly all the time. And um, I was already old. (laughs) (laughs) It is true that Timmy was one of the older queens performing at the time. And it's hard to believe, but that was, you know, 25 years ago at this point. Um, And so I just remember being so not just impressed by Timmy's ability to be a great performer, but also just really kind of like a little bit scary, like very fierce, very funny. Uh, very wicked. I remember once, Timmy, you performing at Drag Strip and you had like that poster with the the big teased out hair and you and Steve Lady and Darlin did a number. Oh my um, God. <laughs> Steve Lady was like a slave master to us for rehearsals. <laughs> we were we were terrified of her. And then Darlin wound up flinging a telephone into the audience. I remember. And it struck someone on the side of the head. (laughs) And it was a vintage phone, so it weighed about 25 pounds. Oh, that was something else. From unintentional violence to intentional violence, let's jump into Grindhouse. Because, Peaches, when you wrote this short film, I'm assuming you created Mrs. Denise, Tammy, with... Timmy in mind. Timmy, do you remember when Peaches first brought you the script for the short film? All I remember is they said, sure, I'll do it. The movie itself has not only you in it, but a reference to your character from Vegas in Space as played by Peaches herself. We'll talk a little bit about Richard Hunter, Dick Hunter in a bit, but (laughs) do you find that playing a murderous stepmother comes naturally to you? I think the easiest emotion to create is anger. Unless someone has a problem with anger, It's the easiest thing to do. It requires the least nuance. And so playing a a villain like that is probably, I would think, I think it's the easiest thing to do. I suppose people think there's, that people have a talent for it, but I think it's the least nuanced thing that there is that you can do in acting. It's interesting because something we don't really talk about on the show in relation to drag is underlying anger. And I think for a certain generation, anger is part of drag performance to some degree. Would, would you agree with that? Well, for me, it is. I mean, it's always nice to have a little bit of anger in everything. But I don't know if it's the anger of oppression or the anger of politic or something to say. That's something different. But but I think for a role like this, you know, it, it's <laughs> she was just a mean person, I, I guess, you know, and that's pretty easy to play, I think. I, Maybe just because I'm, I'm like that. Timmy is one of the nicest, sweetest people, you know, I have the pleasure of knowing. We've been friends for a long, long time. Back when we made Grindhouse, of course, Martini and myself, we we so admired Timmy and looked up to Timmy. I asked Timmy to play that part because I don't think it's super easy to play Wicked in a, a satisfying way that's both scary, intimidating, pathological, and funny. You know, like I think walking the line, often people go too far in one direction. And I think Timmy was wicked, like wicked 
scary, wicked, funny. I had the pleasure, let's just say, of seeing Timmy be angry with with a, a queen here or there. And you never wanted to be in her line of fire. I mean, if you're going to be like that, you have to have a certain amount of charm to balance that or else people are going to be like, I don't want anything to do with her. So, you know, you got to you got to balance that stuff with you know, something funny or something amusing. So, yeah, I, I think I've always been pretty well at doing that. Would you say you've mellowed over the years or no? Oh, yeah, I think so. I think there's two ways because I'll be 70 on my next birthday. Oh, my so, God. Um, you know, I know. it's. I was just looking at some pictures um, of us at your 40th. I guess it was a rebel, and it, it had just come after I had turned, I guess, I guess right after my... 60th, I think. I can't remember. Hecklina and I have thrown Timmy um, a birthday party every 10 years for these huge monumental birthdays. We didn't throw you a 40th. No, 50th, 60th. And I guess we, we need to start planning your 70th. Hecklina said that when she was out here. You know who threw me my 40th was Diet Popstitute. Oh, uh, that, that's amazing. We It was in a warehouse. And yes, Hecklina did mention that when she was out here. So yeah, we I should have it in California, don't you think? Yes, I think you should come okay. home to San Francisco. Uh, the last, yeah. the theme of the last party were for all you Doris Wishman fans out there was Let Me Die a Woman. <laughs> <laughs> and Timmy did a song called Let Me Die a Woman. When did you write and do the song I'm Talking Walmart, Honey? That was for a tranny shack thing, and you were involved in it. And I remember Mr. David did something, but I just wrote some lyrics for it and put it to some like cheap boom beat and i still have it it's um <laughs> it's pretty rude it was the after party for the all about evil premiere at the stud that's what it was that's exactly. what it was and the so, something evil party the something evil party and it was glamour and vivian forevermore and so for listeners the reason this is um significant is because in the short film grindhouse and of course, if you're on our Patreon, uh, you'll have access to Grindhouse. We'll put it up there. It's also included in the new Blu-ray if you get the new Blu-ray of All About Evil. Um, but but Timmy um, has a line um, where she, she says, I'm talking Walmart, honey. And it's the same line that in the feature film I changed to Bed, Bath & Beyond. I think I was told I couldn't use Walmart. It's, it was, I'm talking Walmart, honey. That's where I spend my money. And I go to Walmart. I never went to Walmart. I actually go to Walmart now in Florida. And um, I steal from them anytime I can do <laughs> <Good>. it. Good. <laughs> if there's one company I think we can all agree everyone should steal from, it's Walmart. In fact, wherever you are, dear listeners, you should go out today to the closest Walmart and see how much you can steal. What I love is how relevant it is today as it was when you made the movie, because when you made Grindhouse, you reference Walmart as an evil conglomerate that is 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 uh, kind of ruining our landscape. And here we are, how many years later, still talking about it. You're doing good work, Timmy. Well, thank you so much. We need that here in Florida. So, Timmy, um, we go from you playing Tammy Tanise in Grindhouse to Peaches then gets the opportunity to translate that story into a feature film where you play Principal Hunter. What was your reaction to being pulled back into another feature film? I did have some problems with that because I remember, if you remember Peaches, I got sick, like I always used to do when I was in the hospital. Yeah. So we had to cut down the days that I was in it. 
God, I used to be in the hospital all the time. I wanted Timmy in the movie so badly that um, while he was sick, we did not, I, I kept saying to the producers, I'm not recasting him, I'm not recasting him. And so what we did was, I don't know if you remember this, Timmy, but you actually had more scenes in the original movie right. in the original screenplay he had a bigger part and he was in the finale the principal showed up at the theater and so um in order to keep timmy in the movie i i basically rewrote the script and it was really important to me to have timmy in the movie to have martini in the movie um to have vincentos in the movie to be participating and to have jennifer you know troll girl in the movie timmy showed up and we shot that thing it took all night long you know and he's wearing that hideous you know, blue 80s dress, which actually is very gorgeous. And we're, you know, we're having Jennifer. I remember also Timmy having to land on the floor over and over and over again, you know, with Jennifer um, climbing up on top of him and stabbing him and all of that. You know, these people did this. There was no, there was no pay for any of this. You know, they did it for um, the love of just being part of it. So I really wanted Timmy in the movie. And I had forgotten about that, Timmy. You're right. Pr- the principal had a much bigger part. Um, but I'm 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 no regrets because having you in the movie um is the best. And you know, I will say this: Timmy wears a wig in both movies, right? Grindhouse and All About Evil. By the way, that blue dress, Princess Kennedy lent me that dress. And then after the movie was done, I asked her if she wanted it back. And, you know, it's just all covered in blood and sugar and crap. And she goes, well, no, thanks, just keep it. <laughs> it was a mess. But, yeah, that's where it came from. And, yes, it was a bummer. I got sick. I used to get sick all the time. But you two will be happy to know my health is, I think, since I moved to Florida, my health has improved. I think it's probably better now than it's been for years and years. So I'm very happy about that. This is someone who shows up and has fun and laughs and smiles. And when I say in the face of adversity, I mean, I've seen Timmy stare down death, you know, multiple times, you know, with cancer and hospital visits. And I swear to God, Timmy, I think you should be studied. And I think that one of the reasons you are so healthy and you are such an extraordinary survivor is because of your sense of humor. I think that your ability to laugh and enjoy life and be in the moment, you know, and not sweat bullshit. Timmy does not suffer fools. I think it's why you're so healthy. Well, it's part of it. Even my mom, a right-wing religious fanatic, she actually thought that it was me and the way that I am that helped me, you know, because we didn't talk too much about that, my mom. And and I, but, but, but she thought that, and I thought that I was impressed with that because she wasn't the kind of person that usually, you know, went in for that sort of stuff, new age stuff. So anyway, thank you. Thank you. So, Timmy, we're talking about your history of performance, your out loud persona, your sense of humor. And what I think is really important to note of you playing a principal in All About Evil is for much of the time while you were in San Francisco, you also did work in the San Francisco schools. And you have this other identity as a cult film star, musician, drag performer extraordinaire. Did that ever get clocked in your professional school life? Oh, sure. Well, the whole thing with school too was, um, I was kind of an administrator's nightmare. <laughs> and, um, you know, I always thought, well, what's, why do they have a problem with me? You know, I'm fun, I'm having a good time, but they always, always had a problem with me. And back when MySpace was around, I had no idea that my students had these, uh, because I wasn't really involved in all that stuff back then. 
and this was pre-Facebook, but they had these groups. They had one group um, called We Love Mr. Spence, a.k.a. I forget what they called me, one of the drag names. But, you know, it's funny because, like, every day it was, like, the quote of the day. And, you know, I guess I re- I, I'm not surprised now <laughs> reading some of the stuff why people had a problem with me. But um, I guess it was a tribute to me that I was that sort of a person. But the administration sure didn't care for it. The kids liked it, at least. Some of the kids. You're retired now. So are you comfortable telling the story of how your T-Shack pageant number came back to haunt you years later? The first uh, Tranny Shack uh, pageant where I was, I happened to be the first runner up on account of my number. But, you know, it had to do, there was an enema. It had, I won't go into details, but (laughs) there was an enema nurse. There was an enema and, you know, different things like that. Oh, and and then I watered uh, uh, flowers with um, that, you know. Anyway, no details. But one day I got called into the principal's office in school and there were three <laughs> three people from the school board there. And one particularly this woman, she was just awful. And my principal was there who I loved and who sadly died a couple of years ago. Wow. Uh, I just he was the only principal who I loved and he liked me. And he stuck up for me because every time they asked me a question in this meeting, he'd go like, oh, Jesus Christ, like that. (laughs) (laughs) So funny. But I guess the final straw in that meeting or interview, whatever you want to call it, is that the woman said, listen, Mr. Spence, we're not so much concerned that you were dressed like a woman, but we're very concerned about the enema. (laughs) you know this isn't a professional environment i'm just sitting there in the room thinking oh god please let this moment move on please please let time travel and you know somehow we got through and of course the principal's like oh jesus christ when he heard that and um it was i can only say it was really embarrassing but yeah i did have moments like that in my teaching career Timmy Spence, enema of the state. (laughs) There did become a time where Timmy's students, you know, would approach me, you know, in drag out in public going. That's right. They they would say things like, do you know, Mr. Spence? Is it true that you're friends with Mr. Spence? You know, and I would always get the biggest kick out of that. Oh, dear. That's why I love that Timmy plays this principal in the movie who's sort of opposed to the student who is into what we would consider outrageous art because it's sort of the inverse of your whole experience, both in the educational setting and in the world. So it's kind of a nice nod to people who know you and your career and a good send up of all of it. I love teaching. And, you know, I actually applied to do volunteer. I went to a meeting and everything here because, oh, my God, the kids down here, they need so much help with math. But so I went through all the trainings and everything and called the schools, but they never called me. But I still want to do some volunteer work. I went to the graduation here the other day because all the lifeguards at the pool I go to, they're all such great kids. And, you know, they're going off to college and I'll probably go and visit them. So I've made like 10 lifeguard friends, boys and girls. And it's great. I love having, you know, 18 year old friends because they are, I know the kids in Florida, I love them. They're kind of old style. They're not so much wrapped up in their devices. And they really seem to have more interest in older people than than California. That's what it seems to me. But, you know, I've cultivated 
a number of friendships still with, you know, teenagers. And, uh, oh, I have to get them all gift cards. That reminds me because they all graduated. <laughs> so I got to shell out a couple hundred bucks. You know what they like? Dunkin' Donuts gift cards. Can you believe that? No, I think that they think that you have drugs. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I thought, too. No, those Dunkin' Donuts. That's what they want. Well, I guess sugar's a drug. So while Timmy may not be teaching, if you are in Florida and you, you've enjoyed the acting talents of Timmy on stage or in films like Vegas in Space or All About Evil, Timmy is acting down there and um, actually just did On Golden Pond, or you're still doing it. This is my third show of the year. So I wow. did um, a funny thing happen on the way to the forum. I played Marcus Likas. That was in the very beginning of the year. And then I played this great uh, English thriller, uh, a detective, um, Inspector Davies. And it was a big role and a fantastic role and a, a really well-written play. And now I'm playing the lead in On Golden Pond in Inverness. That's what I was doing all morning. I have, I'm basically in the entire play, so I'm working on my lines. So, yeah, it's pretty exciting. Great part. And it's very me. Like, I don't know if you remember that character, but I understand that character, that mix of, um, you know, wanting to torture people and then also a certain vulnerability about, you know, aging and different things. But he's a great character and very well-written script. I mean, spectacular, that script. At the top of the show, Peaches mentioned your role in Vegas in Space, which we have celebrated here on Midnight Mass and, you know, in the past. And we have also referenced in this episode that in Grindhouse, Peaches plays a reporter named Richard Hunter in uh, homage to your character in Vegas in Space. But you, in All About Evil, also are Principal Hunter. So I'm going to I'm going to draw the nerdy through line. If Vegas in Space is set in the future, could Principal Hunter be your character in Vegas in Space's own ancestor. Oh, you mean like a predecessor, like someone from hundreds of years in the past? Yeah. Yeah, it's a long line of hunters, I guess. You keep getting saddled with this name, so I was trying to help you draw the through line. They didn't name Timmy that because it wasn't true. We all know gays are degenerates, but Timmy really takes the cake. I mean, she would... Josh thinks I was a drug addict. I was. I, I wasn't. I've never been a drinker, really. I'm actually pretty good. Are you on drugs now? You keep calling me this name that I don't recognize. Oh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I started taking drugs in my old age. Uh, yeah, I did peaches. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> I am. Timmy has been nothing but endlessly inspiring. And so it's been so fantastic, uh, especially as far as the story of All About Evil and the story of this particular podcast goes. What I love about Timmy's performance as the stepmom is Julie Caitlin Brown, who plays the stepmom in the feature film. Those actors, Natasha and Julie had not seen, or Patrick had not, Patrick who plays the, the, the news reporter, they hadn't seen the short film. And what I think is hilarious is how similar some of the their choices are. Um, and Julie was the person who in the auditions most reminded me of Timmy. And that's why she got the part, you know. I remember now too that you showed that at the Castro and I was in the hospital then too. I couldn't come to the screening at the Castro, but but everybody said, oh, Timmy, I loved you in it. But I didn't, I don't know if I've ever seen it all the way through because I was in the hospital that night too. Jesus oh. Christ. No. You need to see the movie. You're fabulous in it. You're hilarious. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming on the show. You've been a total blast. You're welcome. 
That was our interview with the sensational Timmy Spence. Uh, you know, I gushed about Timmy all through the uh, setup to his interview. So I, you know, can't express enough how much I love him. And one of the reasons I love Timmy is how unapologetic he is. You know, even as we are trying to talk to him about his history with the movie and just where he was when you guys made it, the fact that Timmy wanted to just talk about what Timmy wanted to talk about. And then it led us to that amazing story about being called into the administrator's office for his drag performances. <laughs> that to me is quintessential Timmy Spence. That's what I want out of a Timmy Spence conversation. Timmy's just truly uh, one of a kind and just amazing and someone I've endlessly been inspired by. And I'm so grateful that uh, like I get to call, you know, Timmy a friend. One thing I do want to say, uh, just a reminder to all of our Patreon subscribers, if you would like to see Timmy Spence as the Wicked Stepmother, I'm going to put up the short film Grindhouse on our Patreon. This is the film that became all about evil. Now, of course, if you buy the Severin Blu-ray, it's included there too. So, right. you know, yes, yes, I'm shamelessly trying to get you to join the Patreon and buy, buy the Blu-ray, goddammit. One of my favorite things about Timmy Spence in Vegas in Space that also informs you exactly who Timmy is, is if you've seen the movie, you know that Timmy's character disappears quite early on. And it's yes. because Timmy was like, this movie's going to take how long to make? Just kill me. And that's yeah. why Timmy exits the movie. And I love that factoid. She was doing drag back then. And, and you know, she was friends with all those queens. But she was like, no, this sounds like hell. Uh, so they, <laughs> they had to kill Timmy. I don't think the original plan was to get rid of her that early. I think she was going to be in the movie more. She was going to turn into a woman like the other ones. Right. Um, when we talk about Timmy being unapologetically kind of offensive in a way, uh, I don't think you can quite grasp like the levels to which this person has said and done things. And one of my favorite stories was when Hecklina left town and I was hosting the shack and Timmy was the co-hostess and it was for the LGBT Historical Society, which is a big, big deal in San Francisco. And they've grown to become an extraordinarily important piece of not just the city, but LGBT history around the world. They're the model. And they were doing a fundraiser. And this is 20 years ago. And Timmy has been very open about um, his, you know, struggles with health, as we discussed on the podcast, and always had a wicked sense of humor. And I said to Timmy, it's great to have you here. We're doing this as a benefit for the LGBT Historical Society. And of course, these people were there. They were never at the stud at midnight on a Tuesday. So you've right. got all these sort of like sweater gays, you know, in the audience. <laughs> and Timmy goes, um, you know, I don't see what the big deal is about gay history. I mean, the way I see it is, well, first you're gay, then you get AIDS, and then you're history. Oh. <laughs> and the looks, and he kind of just walked off stage, leaving me to like deal with it, you know? Horribly offensive, horrible, horrible, horrible. Yes, yeah. But hilarious and irreverent and rude as fuck. And the way that a community that was struggling was dealing, you know, and this was the place where the audience loved irreverent humor. The more shocking or outrageous or offensive, you know, the better. It was a different time. It was a different time Absolutely, and a different yeah. place. But um, Timmy, oh, he's just wonderful. He's just so great. One of the reasons I brought up his departure from Vegas in space in the fashion that he did was because I sort of viewed it as the reverse of our next guest. Because here's Timmy, whose character had intended to stay much longer than actually planned. 
Meanwhile, we've got this next person who really had only planned on doing her character with you a short while, and it ended up becoming a huge part of her life. Uh, And I love that she went from a featured player and uh, major cast member in the old Midnight Mass days to being the star of the original Grindhouse to being in All About Evil and still someone uh, that is able to uh, pop up from time to time and, and give you grief. She's also the star of the first film in, in our, our trilogy of terror. She's the troll in season of the troll. Yeah. Um, so, you know, she she did become infamous playing a troll uh, at Midnight Mass known as Troll Girl. And um, she is someone I've known since we were since we got our driver's licenses. She is who I went to Lollapalooza with, you know, in high school. Like, you know, we go way, way, way back. And I just love her so much. Um, so with Without further ado, it's Jenny Tear. So excited to introduce our next guest on the Midnight Mass podcast. And this podcast, as you know, is extremely personal for me because uh, we're talking about a, a movie that's near and dear to my heart and one that came from my brain. This Next guest is the original Deborah Tanise, and she brought this character to life. And uh, more than that, she is literally a childhood friend of mine. We met when we were like 16 years old or something, uh, and we instantly became besties. We stayed uh, in close, close touch. We've actually lived together over the years. She performed at the Midnight Mass stage show, the original uh, Midnight Mass from the beginning as Troll Girl. Many, many people in San Francisco still remember the horror that is Troll Girl. But she moved to New York some time ago. She became a very successful actress, a producer, a filmmaker. She's a writer. And she also came back to uh, co-star in All About Evil when we were making the feature. She also has her own podcast called Halfway There, The New Middle Age, uh, which is hilarious and wonderful. And I was a guest on it on an early episode of that. So check out that podcast. Uh, Without Without further ado, it's the fantastic Jenny Tear. Wow, I feel like I'm at my own funeral. This whole thing with All About Evil being re-released, wait till you see the uh, featurette that's, um, you know, the documentary in it, because I I felt like I was at my own funeral watching that because it was just all people talking about me. And it made me very uncomfortable. Well, just even talk about the shell shock of the phrase long lost. All of these public, uh, (laughs) these, these, uh, these press pieces are saying the long lost film. And it feels like just yesterday we were at the Castro for the premiere or that we were on the road. That's where uh, Jen, you and I met was on the road for this movie. Yeah, because you guys came to New York and we showed it at the Sunshine Cinema. And I remember, yeah, I was in, I revived um, Troll Girl. 
Yeah. And yeah, yeah, you did the road show there. I guess that's the first time we met, huh? I think so. And then you subsequently, I think, were in the Baltimore and Silver Spring shows with us, if I'm not mistaken. I came down for those too. Yeah. I know I've seen you since then, but like when when revisiting all of this, I was thinking to myself, oh, I just saw her recently, but I guess it's not so recently. And that's where time is cruel and an illusion. Well, I know you think it's recently because I mean, I look like it was just recently. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Yet she's literally regressing in age. Let's dig into the the passage of time uh, in a fun way, hopefully, uh, and go back to the beginning when you met Peaches, a.k.a. Joshua, uh, mm-hmm. and, and just sort of this trajectory of, of watching Peaches become Peaches. Uh, you know, you were childhood friends. You you exist in the BPC days. <laughs> so when you came out to San Francisco and got involved in this world. Yeah. Tell me about that. Well, I was in college in Baltimore um, and I actually went out to San Francisco to do a program at ACT. They're like summer theater program and then just didn't end up leaving and stayed for two years. And I guess I just started performing. I remember Joshua one of the first Midnight Mass shows you guys were showing to die for. And it was like a get famous contest or something. And uh-huh. you had me do a monologue. I did like a Sam Shepard monologue. <laughs> I forgot about that. Oh my God. And I did it for like a theater full of people. It was super, like a complete theater try hard. But it wasn't full of people. If you remember, I what I do remember about To Die Hard was that's what I discovered. Not all movies I think are cult movies are cult movies, right? We had we had um, done like a very successful night of Faster Pussycat Kill Kill and Showgirls with big audiences. And I, and I think female trouble and then to die for was the first like bomb I ever had where there was like 40 people in a 400 seat theater. But that was the first summer you did midnight mass and you were still building an audience. And then that year we did a bunch of stuff at what's called T shack now. Um, and wasn't then. And that was really, really fun. And I remember distinctly, it was a couple of days before showgirls. And you had advertised that if you bought a large corn and a large drink, you got a free lap dance. Only you didn't have anybody to do the lap dances. And you called me and you're like, we do it, we do it, we do it. And I was like, no, no, no. And then there was a long pause and you're like, we do it in a troll mask. Because you've gotten it as a house warming gift remember yes it was it was in a box of stuff a box of amphibians and i was like yeah okay and <laughs> basically that's how that like character was born i remember laughing so hard underneath that mask i came out i'd ripped lingerie and this like, <laughs> truly hideous mask and ran around like basically bumping people's uglies like all through the audience. It was so fun. Well, I think it's important to discuss the the origins of Troll Girl in terms of the trajectory to All About Evil because it's all sort of linked. You develop this character that starts appearing in Peach's shows, usually with the intent of, of killing her or, or causing trouble. Troll Girl would often um, team up with Martini, who was my sidekick, who also, you know, I was not I was not very nice to. Um, so it was like Martini was sweet and I would beat up on her and Troll Girl was nasty, you know, and I would beat up on her. And Troll Girl, I mean, in many ways, it was such a great showcase for Jennifer because she is such a great physical comedian. And I think 
she got to experience what drag performers experience. You know, for her, the mask was what we think of as our our armor when we put on our makeup and our wig. And because honestly, Jennifer and I, while while kind of outrageous in sort of on stage and in you know when we're performing, like if we're not on stage, we're pretty average and don't really call attention to ourselves. But you know, put us in a wig and a mask, and and she would go nuts. I mean, totally nuts. And also, you know, it was like real mask work. It felt like comedia in some ways. It was it was just it was fun to follow up on what Peaches said. Did you find it liberating in some way as well? Yeah, totally. I'm actually thinking it's funny that talking about this, it, just bringing back specific memories. I remember one time I had to be in a kiddie pool. For some reason, I needed huge tits. Double Agent 73. <laughs> I grabbed two of the soda cups from behind the concession stand and I put them underneath this oldie time bathing suit, like bloomers. And we had a wet t-shirt contest and I was one of the contestants. And I remember that water got into the the cups, the like huge titted cups, you know, and I remember pulling them out and pouring the water out on stage. And (laughs) in the moment, creativity, just what you can create spur of the moment, like just physical comedy. And it was, it was totally liberating. I mean, I look back on that time as like some of the best times of my life and just like the nature of the best of kind of underground performing when there's a real spirit of freedom and fun and, and like love and just that kind of laughter that you get when you're in church, like you can't, you know, uncontrollable, inappropriate feelings. Well, and from this spirit of camaraderie, you're really pushing down barriers for yourself and you're on stage with these performers who are doing the same. You're developing an audience. Peaches comes to you with the idea of let's take Troll Girl from the stage to the screen with the season of the troll. So with that, what was your reaction when Peaches was like, all right, now movie? I think about that time and everything was fun. I did not have an agenda, I think to my detriment, like ultimately, but I really did. I was just always kind of all in. I love that short film. It was really fun. It was like kind of my first intro into the world of like short filmmaking. You and Martini and Squeaky really built up your own fan bases at Midnight Mass because it was this drag show with a reoccurring cast. You know, we did have special guests every week, depending on what movie we had. But really, the four of us were the four that showed up over and over and over again. And so the audience really did build up this unique fan culture. They loved Troll Girl. They loved Martini. They loved Squeaky. And um, this was the first time they actually saw the person behind the mask because in the short film troll girl disguises herself as a, a as a babysitter to come and take care of martini who's sick and actually is trying to kill martini which is hilarious but <laughs> you know so they saw jennifer as this sort of mary poppins but you know that the idea was that that was her mask in fact we have a seat, a shot of her pulling off her face you know, and underneath her face is the troll face. <laughs> it's so dumb, but it was really great because it was like, oh, now the audience can see that Jennifer is a, you know, is an actor, you know. Like a demented Mary Poppins. Remember I had yes. like a British accent. Yes. When we were shooting the part where I follow you into the theater, like what if I put the knife into your, because at that point you still had birdseed boobs. Wait, that was your idea? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I gotta say, Jenny, I've been praising that gag for years. It's one of my favorite things. And I've never given her credit for it. <laughs> <laughs> 
look, it was just incredibly fun and really funny and like sweet and clever. And like, it was great, you know, and the music and everything. What's interesting about Season of the Troll, as well as the other two films in that trilogy, Nightmare on Castro Street and Whatever Happened to Peaches Christ, as Peaches has said in the past, is these movies were curated for your local audience. You never really thought that they would go beyond that. Now, of course, they have and people have embraced them. But then comes Grindhouse. It feels like a shift. This seems less about the Midnight Mass crowd and the local audience and and looking towards something bigger. So could you talk a little bit about the development of the story? And could you tell me about when Peaches first gave you this script? Sure. You know, what's interesting is that it makes me feel like we did the Tranilogy of Terror before Grindhouse. But actually, in 2001, we made Season of the Troll. And the other thing about that that's really interesting is that Jennifer... Um, at the end of the summer in 2001, was going to leave uh, and move to New York City to make it big as a theatrical actor. And um, and because of 9-11, of course, we were like, uh, Jennifer, we don't think you should move to New York right now, nor did she, right? So actually, this is so fucked up to say, but without 9-11, there wouldn't have been a season of The Troll because what happened was Jennifer then was in San Francisco and I saw an opportunity to make a film. We had wrapped up the summer season a Midnight Mass. So we made Season of the Troll, which we actually premiered at an event I was doing, a new event in the Russian River in Guerneville. And so that's actually why Season of the Troll happened and the way it happened. And so the next year for the same event, after, after realizing how many people enjoyed Season of the Troll, we did a sequel. And that was A Nightmare in Castro Street. And that focused on Squeaky as a character. And, uh, and then I knew that I needed to focus on Martini for the third one. But what happened was I was frustrated by the lack of um, screening opportunities for local filmmakers. We were making these short films and they were getting programmed in places, which was so strange. But nobody locally was showing our films. So Vincentos and I decided to start our own film festival. (laughs) And we called it the San Francisco Underground Short Film Festival. And so I knew for the premiere of that film festival, I wanted to create something that was non-Peaches centric. And I wanted to do something that didn't rely on the um, popularity of these drag characters like Troll Girl and Martini and myself, um, just to see if I could do it. I think in many ways I was second guessing my own abilities, you know, and I also was having that early um, drag queen relationship, that dual identity that a lot of long-term drag queens can relate to, where I was starting to resent Peaches. I was starting to get frustrated by the success of Peaches. It felt, felt like I was losing my own identity. You know, in my mind, I was like, wait, but but I was supposed to be a writer and director. I was supposed to be a filmmaker. You know, so I was like, well, I'm going to make a movie that has nothing to do with Peaches Christ just to see if it can work. And that truly is what led to Grindhouse. I remember getting the script and thinking, oh my God, this is really dark in like a great way. Has it been 20 years? Well, it it came out in 2003, so almost 20 years. Holy shit, yeah. Um, Just realizing that his name was Richard Hunter and that this short version was Dick, Dick Hunter. I mean, it was hilarious and also being very slap happy, but also the film, you know, now thinking about how we touched a little bit about social media and every bit thing, like in some ways the film seems really that short, specifically her relationship to the camera and blurring the line between real violence and fictional violence. Like in some ways the film seems really ahead of its time. 
Yeah. Like the kind of how we effectively record everything. Jennifer, maybe you didn't realize, but Dick Hunter was a, um, uh, a inside wink at Timmy Spence, who of course plays your stepmother in that movie because that was his character's name in Vegas in Space. Yeah. Oh, okay. So, so it was an intentional kind of a San Francisco little nod. So I can't, uh, that, unlike the bird seed, <laughs> I, can't, I can't take credit for it. <laughs> The tone of Grindhouse, as you're saying, is decidedly darker than the the trilogy because it it goes into a a more horror space than, I mean, even though the other ones are horror and horror parody, in approaching this versus Troll Girl, you probably had to dig a lot deeper. And I'm wondering um, if if you could speak a little bit to that, that thin line between horror and comedy, because the scene with you and Timmy is hilarious and terrifying all at once where you kill her. She's going to sell the theater to Walmart, which is such a great, like a nod to what was happening and things to come in terms of like, you know, the Walmartification of our lives. But anyway, all that anxiety that's in the movie was coming from a real place because Jennifer, myself, Martini, we all lived at the Bridge Theater. Yeah. It was really our home away from home. We didn't just do Midnight Mass there. I was running that theater. Martini and Jennifer worked at that theater. Corey worked at that theater. Everyone we loved worked at that theater. And we were literally just a cinema trash family. Yeah. And so I could see at that time in the early aughts, you know, theaters in San Francisco started to close left and right as these megaplexes were opening. The Metreon, the AMC 1000, you know, the, yeah. there was this real anxiety. I think you can feel it in that film. And, and yeah. that's where the, the story came from. It was like, what length should you go to in order to save these movie theaters from quote unquote Walmart? In addition to the thin line between comedy and horror, when preparing your performance, were you putting some of that real anxiety into it? Because you were living it. I had moved to New York, so I flew back to San Francisco to do it. Maybe it's embracing the total extremes that in some ways you start to like touch parody. Like, I think that was something that was so horrifying about like Donald Trump is that he was like a parody come to life. And the best sort of horror parodies are like, they they somehow get very close to the capturing the real human being. Does that make any sense? Absolutely. I think I understand where you're going. And obviously my biggest inspiration as a filmmaker has always been John Waters. And I think John in particular has a brilliant way of showing what is so ugly about the world and so truly terrifying about the world, whether it's racism or sexism or homophobia, but he is always able to do it with this wicked sense of humor that I think really speaks to just queer culture in general, just queerness in general is we are thick skinned. We are warriors. So we can actually look at some of this material with a sense of humor. I think it's just like stretching what is real just a little further than, right? It's like just yes. blowing it up a little further than reality. And I think what's strange about right now is we're seeing like a lot of parody come to life. I don't know. How do you make a parody of Donald Trump? I mean, there's just... I think when you do that kind of performance, that's... that. The, the sort of horror comedy, the line between horror comedy, it's just like taking what is really human and just stretching it a little further. Yeah. I mean, Peaches and I just talked about this on a recent episode where we so frequently in discussing John Waters look at his use of camp. But what really makes John Waters work is he's making fun of 
air quotes, normalcy, normal things are the things that he's really lampooning. And when normal becomes something like Donald Trump becomes Walmart buying your theater, and we just accept that therein is the horror. How, how do you make that funnier? I think it is harder. Like, um, yeah, I'm thinking about the Ming Stoll characters, like the Taffy, like they all have their origins in something very recognizable. Like yeah. even mm-hmm. overbearing mothers that divine played, they're all like based in some kind of reality. They're just stretched. It's interesting, like the difference between those films and and people who are kind of mining diff- that same terrain, but for some reason their films are like Michael Haneke is the only one I can think of because all, all those films are like horrific to me. I just feel bad for anyone who's listening to us talk about Michael Haneke, who's like, I need to see this Grindhouse film, and and then they go <laughs> and watch it. Oh my god! Which, by the way, um, it is included on the brand new special edition Blu-ray re-release that. Severin's putting out. So if you if you want to see Grindhouse where, you know, it all started and see Jennifer play Deborah Denise, you can get the Blu-ray and that film is on the Blu-ray. I haven't seen it in like 20 years, I think. I haven't seen it in many, many years either. I definitely haven't seen it since All About Evil was first released. So it's been, you know, probably 12 years since I've watched it. I watched it, it again recently. Uh, and obviously I wasn't involved in it, but it's really fun. And I did save a, a still frame of the wig that Peaches wears because even... As Dick Hunter, she still had to wear a wig. Yeah. And it's <laughs> it's did. a choice. Um, so the, the shorts <laughs> included on this Blu-ray re-release of All About Evil, which, of course, you know, here's the short film that you're in that then gets developed into a feature film. Mm-hmm. What was it like watching that process? And then and just, you know, knowing that you were there at the beginning and then this movie goes on. To, to become this cult classic. It's been really cool and slightly every it's slightly surreal. I have to say, just watching Joshua's like ascendancy or building like an empire has been really amazing. It's been fucking, it's been wonderful. Joshua um, has always been an incredible ensemble leader, like one of the most generous like team builders and artistic collaborators, just really, kind of extraordinary in terms of like making everybody feel seen and like really making people want to join something like it's been really fun. It's wonderful to see somebody like kind of craft a dream into their lives. So I want to say very proud and like, Oh, thank you. Going to shoot the film was really intimidating. I, you know, it was like one of my first big film gigs. And it was like, oh my gosh, it takes, this is truly like a village of people who make this happen. Just the technical crew part of it. Jennifer's big scene in the movie is when Natasha's character, Deborah, uh, in All About Evil, goes to the mental institution to uh, basically lie and say that she's the the aunt or the relative of the twins and get them out of the mental hospital. And the the attendant, there's an office scene where Natasha's convincing someone of this and it's played by Jennifer. So it was the two Deborahs sitting down and there's, you know, a, a scene between the two of them. And, I, you know, that's not a small no. scene. Like you're, it's a tough scene in many ways because anyone in All About Evil who had to play straight against the ridiculousness of the evil family, you know, the twins, Mr. Twigs, Noah's character, Adrian, or Natasha's character, Deborah. So I always feel like Cassandra, Jennifer, 
Timmy Spence, of course, Thomas Decker, you know, they had the hardest job in the movie. And Jennifer is sitting there and she's opposite Jack Donner and Natasha Leone chewing up the scenery, playing the big evil, you know, couple with the twins standing behind a glass window, a two-way mirror, you know, in a padded cell. Um, so Jennifer, you were amazing. You did a fantastic job. And it was no easy feat to come in and do that scene. I remember being really struck by by both of them and also by him, just like his, his career. And I remember being intimidated by her. <laughs> by her. You didn't <laughs> want to have like a rumble for the, the title of ultimate Deborah. No, I mean, that's not, I, I wish I, I wish I had that instinct in me. I think I just was just trying to hold my own, honestly, at that point. It's no secret that Natasha who, um, you know, I adore and I adore everything she's given to this movie. But it's also, you know, very clear if you listen to the other features on the Blu-ray, especially that uh, the, the cast for sure bonded in a very specific way. And that bond sort of orbited around Natasha. Natasha wasn't really part of that bond. I would say that Natasha and I bonded as director and actor, but that Natasha as Deborah and the person playing Deborah definitely was intimidating. Like not just, just to Jennifer, but to everyone. I don't think she was method acting as much as she was just in a very specific headspace. Really, a lot of it was driven by a true pressure to carry yeah. this entire yeah. film, which she did. I mean, like, you can't say anything other than whoever was going to play that part, that's who was going to color the whole movie. You know, you could swap out some of the other actors, no offense to the other characters, but you could swap out almost all of them. And they didn't necessarily have the power to change the entire course of the film. And Natasha totally understood that the weight of the film's success rested on her shoulders. And so... There was an intensity to her every day on yeah. set and you felt it. I didn't feel any Joan Crawford feelings of like, move, move over, Christina. <laughs> so I just was, uh, I was still a babe in the woods at that point. You know, I was still kind of finding my sea legs just in terms of learning how to film act. And um, there was a script supervisor, you know, and that was new because you don't, I mean, you have a stage manager in theater, but having somebody follow your lines and just sort of starting to acclimate to how a film set works, you know, all of that. I'm really grateful that, you know, I had that experience. And then the movie comes out, mm -hmm. the movie goes on the road and you get to bring Troll Girl back. It's all full circle. It's like very William Castle. I wish I'd been at the San Francisco premiere because that sounds like it was amazing. But this whole thing is really amazing that they're just reissuing this and it's like kind of incredible. I'm going to ask you a variation of a question I ask a lot of our guests on this show, but this is this is way more entrenched because this is your life. So from the beginning, meeting Lil Peaches all those years ago to playing <laughs> the first version of Deborah Tanise, to being in that hospital room in All About Evil, to reviving Troll Girl on the Road and everything in between. You've been on this amazing journey. How has your relationship with Midnight Mass and All About Evil changed or evolved over the years, if at all? Joshua just sent us these pictures of like old school Midnight Mass and it was so like incredible to click through. Um, it's funny, a lot of people I think having have their coming of age like in college 
I guess. And I feel like mine came when I moved to San Francisco. So it really holds a place of nostalgia, I guess, in in the best sense, not like corrosive nostalgia, but like a really beautiful nostalgia in my life. And in some ways, I think of it as like a really great time in the landscape of the country. I mean, that sounds stupid, but it's like it was like pre-internet. You know, it was that last gasp before the internet. We were just coming into that being part of our lives. So it's weird. I feel like we were both more performative and less performative. Again, this could be a function of my nostalgia, but I feel like the art we made and the way we hung out with each other, there was something really sincere about it in a way that I I think of very fondly. If there were agendas, they weren't like broadcast in a certain way that they might be now. I think a lot about that in terms of just how I hope to relate to people. I I really think of that as a very prized time. Even the function of movies. Like, I remember working at the Bridge Theater during the Blair Witch Project and what a fucking phenomenon that was. And running into the theater with big, you know, plastic garbage bags and picking up puke and popcorn and like how many people came to that and our experience in working it or Shakespeare in love, just the function of movie theater still in that time as a kind of like cultural touchstone, which I feel like in my life, I've seen that sort of fade or it's become so niche oriented that we're not going to have a collective experience. So I really think of that, those years doing Midnight Mass, the performances, our group of friends, the bridge, almost like my own indie movie. I love that. There was definitely a purity to it all that um, is hard to imagine these days because as far as being performative goes, we only had to be performative when we were performing. And there wasn't this need to be performative every day in your life, on social media, on Facebook, on Instagram, like that didn't exist. And even the performances you did in the moment at a midnight mass, you couldn't imagine a world where anyone beyond who was in that room would ever experience what you were putting out there. So sometimes I think there was more freedom of anarchy, of punk rockness, of just wild expression because it was just you and the 400 people in that room at 1 a.m., you know, on a Saturday in a foggy San Francisco summer night. And that we can't really imagine anymore. I mean, even if you're doing the smallest storytelling event, you're always aware that someone could be videotaping you and that this could be used to cancel you at any moment, you know, or whatever. You know what I mean? God, I would have been arrested. I would have been canceled. I would have been a lot of things had the world not been what it was back then. When we did our short bus episode, John Cameron Mitchell talked about uh, how the movie is sort of set in a world that doesn't exist anymore. And yeah. what we're talking about here is is very much similar in, in, a, in a different way. But you talk about your time at Midnight Mass and making these short films and performing on that stage as sort of your own indie movie in your mind. But you both also have the indie movie that represents that era because What is Grindhouse? What is All About Evil? If not speaking to that communal place that we go, the anarchy of bringing people together, the misfits coming together, these movies are your story, basically. And I think that's truly, truly wonderful. Yeah. Well, that seems like the perfect way to wrap things up, Michael. Um, I I do think that, um, you know, what, what we'll find with this episode is that we could probably talk for hours because this, this time in our life was so 
special. I think for all of us, we all, we all really feel that. And um, I think we're touching on something that's like, Oh, right. This is part of what made it special. It was just ours and that audience, which in the overall scheme of things was a very local audience, you know, who really loved us. So yeah, but Jennifer, I love you. I can't thank you enough for coming on the Midnight Mass podcast. Tell us uh, about anything you have coming up before you go. So I do a podcast every week called Halfway There, a podcast about the new middle age, where we just talk about like what our new aches and pains are that week. And then we pontificate on like what's wrong with the world. So I really love it because I'm I'm attracted to misery <laughs> and articulating it in all its forms. No, I'm kidding. And then in September, I actually have a film showing at the UCLA Extension Film Festival. I've been taking screenwriting classes there. It'll show September 9th through 12th. That's kind of what I have going on in the immediate like three month span. Well, uh, everybody check those things out if you can. If you are able to go to the film festival, listen to this podcast every week. And also, uh, I guess my last question, when will Troll Girl finally defeat Peaches Christ? Very, very soon. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> And that was our interview with Jenny Tear. I love Jenny. Uh, I, you know, was so lucky to meet her on the All About Evil tour and have kind of kept in touch and, you know, kept updated on what she's been doing in the years since. She's an awesome filmmaker as well as, you know, you never know when Troll Girl will return. And what's a real joy about getting to celebrate Grindhouse and All About Evil with her, not only is to look at the trajectory of of the character of Deborah Tenise and how she has moved throughout the years, but to even go back further and just talk about the shared history that you two have. And I think just like all of our guests, we probably could have sat and talked to her for ages to keep uncovering all these other things. And I think that's what really made all of these conversations so special. All About Evil is being booked in uh, Phoenix, Arizona, at the end of the summer. They're going to announce it soon. And when they called me, um, they said, well, you know, we we don't have the budget to bring the, the full show the way you did for the premiere. And I said, don't worry about it. I'm not doing that show anymore. What I'm doing now is I'm taking a couple deleted scenes, some behind the scenes photos, and I am giving you the one woman Peaches Christ seminar on how All About Evil came to be. And I'm putting it together. So I may ask for your help. Maybe you can direct me because I really want to put together a show. Part of the show is in some ways what I would do when I'm asked to go and speak to students. And when right. I when I taught at the San Francisco Art Institute. And a big part of my, I guess, overall message is collaborations matter. Surround yourself with people whose talent intimidates you. And I think our three guests today are a great example of people who early, early, early on in my quote unquote career were people I knew were fucking talented. And I said, I want to be around these people. I want to work with these people. And not only did they work with me and we continued to work together, we continue decades later, literally decades to be close friends and collaborators to this day. So for all the young people listening, surround yourself, hang out with the people that intimidate you, become a magnet for talent. You know, I find so often, especially in the drag world and the film world, that people actually push other people away because they think 
that the other talented people are going to affect the luster of their star. No, 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 no. Surround yourself with those people. It's a mistake that I see so many people make. I love that we're kind of ending on this conversation because week after week, when we talk about cult film and we talk about our draw to these cult films and sort of the communities that we've built around them and the chosen family that we've found, whether it's movies we made or movies we go to worship, it is essential to connect. And you're right, as much as in drag as it is in the film industry, or even any brand of entertainment, I see these people who sort of autonomously think that they alone can raise their star. And that's just not the truth. And I have found in my own path as a creator that I much prefer collaborating with people than trying to do things on my own because we feed from each other's creative energy. We inspire each other. And the older I get, who the fuck cares about being the like solo, whatever, that's no, that's not interesting to me. I like working with the same people because of that synergy that we share. I like collaborating with people and discovering new people to collaborate with because you learn things from each other. All artists inform other artists. So to try and build a wall between that is is to lose sight of what makes art what it is. Art is supposed to communicate. It's true. All of my favorite people, if you look at all my favorite filmmakers, all my favorite queens, look at the John Waters universe, look at like Richard O'Brien and Tim Curry and all those people, look at, you know, a Moldavar and that whole world. And, you know, it's always a community, at least uh, that's the way I see it. Not that you can't be an artist on your own, but certainly don't want to make movies on your own. Give me a break. So... If you are the kind of person who will show up for your friend and do a weekend's worth of shooting for some free popcorn and some movie passes, well, then you too might be one of the children of the popcorn now. Midnight Mass is created and co-hosted by Peaches Christ and Michael Verratti. The series is produced by Joshua Grinnell, Michael Verratti, and Heather Dunham. The Midnight Mass score and theme music was composed by Andrew J. Sepperly. Midnight Mass is a Peaches Christ production. <laughs> <laughs>